Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Welcome back to There's No Business Like. Josh Benson here with my friends, Katie. Hello, Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Kevin. Kevin Maynard, Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. Danielle. Hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alton in McLean, Virginia. And Brian. Brian Zelmer from KU Presents at Kutztown University. So my question for you today is, during the pandemic, all of us had to pivot a lot because of the craziness that it was. But some pivots that people made really didn't make much of a difference. Some were really influential in how things move forward from there. So in your experience during the pandemic, what was the most influential pivot that you had to make during that time? So Josh, in March of 2021, the CEO of Midland Center for the Arts uh, decided to do a huge pivot to outdoor programming. And the first thing that we did was to produce a brand new program that we ended up calling Rising Stars, which is where we brought in Broadway talent from New York to come work with top tier high school performers from our region on an outdoor stage and a professional like Broadway level rehearsal and production schedule. Um, So from the date in March uh, that she decided this to (laughs) the opening night of the show was exactly 90 days. So we were able to pull together all the talent, get students to audition virtually, pull together a production team, all of this stuff and produce a Broadway level, you know, high school musical show in 90 days. And that has continued on. So that program has continued. We still produce that with Broadway folks coming in from New York every year, um, putting that on an outdoor stage. And then we actually transition that to having some of our community theater shows also on an outdoor stage in the summertime. So that pivot was highly successful and has had a legacy. It's really stuck around. And we produced two shows outside just this past summer in 2023. So I would say that that's probably the biggest thing that we did and was honestly the most successful thing that we did too. I don't know why, but I started thinking about like medieval pageant wagons and how there would be different carts. They would move forward. There would be a different scene on each cart. And so then the audience would see the whole show and like the car, or they didn't have cars, the cart would drive by. I hit me. I was like, but what if we did that in reverse? where like the actor stays still and then the cars go by because then we could have distance. We could have people acting. We could be outdoors. Like we could, we could have theater and COVID restrictions. So I sold this idea to my boss and her boss. And then um, somehow they allowed me to continue this crazy plan. Um, We commissioned a playwright to write a play of monologues that move sequentially that a car can drive from one station to another and hear a story. The elements of theater just in a parking lot. And within about two months, we produced our first drive through drama production, which is what we ended up calling it, called Small Change, written by Andrew Scott Zimmer. And it was a huge learning experience. Um, but you know, after that, that fall, we produced two more shows that were totally different from each other. And in 2020, it allowed us to keep making theater. Um, we pivoted to being producers, which was a huge jump for us. It definitely had its challenges, but like that was one of the things that I'm most proud of that I've done professionally in my life. For us during the pandemic, I mean, we did a lot of things that a lot of other folks did, but one of the things we, I think we did really well was for our Visiting Artist series, the program that we put inside our public schools, we created an entirely digital platform 
that wasn't full length performances. Like we had artists custom make us videos three to five minutes long, um, along with worksheets and different things that they could interact with the students with uh, on that front. And it was something that, you know, it, it, it worked out pretty well. We kept it going for a little bit after the pandemic, but it just, obviously, once you get performers back in the schools, it became less effective. But honestly, what we really learned during the pandemic was the ability to pivot quickly and to change things and really drive this idea home that I think a lot of us are used to in the arts that like nothing's really sacred or precious. Like let's try stuff. Let's do something a little bit different. Um, here in our office, the joke is chop the tree down. Like, Hey, like, let's just chop the tree down, take it down to the ground. Like let's build this up for the beginning. And so it's allowed us to really look at our program very differently. Uh, during the pandemic, we turned to doing an interview style, sort of like this podcast, but it was live uh, simulcast on Facebook and YouTube, just doing short little interviews with uh, different professionals in the field. And we even had a local focus. We I spoke with professors. I spoke with you know, the local orchestra and just trying to mix it up. And I really enjoyed getting to interview people. And, and I discovered that. But I was really bad at it. And my very first interview was Dina Blizzard, who we just recently had on our podcast. And I invited her because I knew she would, you know, she's an expert. She's a pro and, and goes live all the time. And I, I knew she would help me if I stumbled because I, I figured I would. And uh, it's so cringy to go back and watch it. But the thing I didn't expect, and with it being live, is that her fan base would come too. You know, we could see how many people were on and suddenly we go live and there's 14,000 people on the live and I'm, I'm like, okay, I wasn't nervous enough, but now I'm like shaking and uh, it all worked out okay. But again, that was a fun experience. We dove into public art and exhibiting public art and establishing public art in the community. And that's obviously kept going and, and become a really strong thing for us. So this all leads us into my interview with Dan Talmy today. He also had a, a huge change up uh, during the pandemic. And then once again, while he was trying to relaunch coming out of the pandemic, enjoy my conversation today with Dan Talmy. Dan Talmy, Talmy Entertainment, and the show is Nutcracker Magical Christmas Ballet. So how did you get involved in the arts and in the business of ballet to begin with? It's really family business. I'm second generation and my parents, Akiva and Mary, tell me. Juilliard graduates, so Mary had a, a contemporary dance company in Connecticut for years. Akiva's a composer by training. And so they just sort of in the 70s were figuring it out and doing doing ballet and dance stuff. And, you know, he was, Akiva was an agent for a long time doing like anything dance, anything. And so Russian ballet kind of, you know, the, the Soviet system was kind of falling apart. This was the cold war era. Right. So, so it was sexy. There was like, you know, uh, guys like Gudinov was his big client, you know, and he, this, this dancer at the time was like trying to cross over and defect. And he was in diehard, the movie uh, series. And so it was this like quasi celebrity thing happening. And, um, and then the wall fell. And so the first Nutcracker tour under the brand Moscow Ballet's Great Russian Nutcracker was 92, 93. And, that, and then that just, that popped. Cause it, you know, before that it was again, the, the contemporary dance and much smaller, smaller like chamber stuff. And, and so, yeah, I grew up in that environment. Just dance and the arts. It was all that they, it was their lives. My brother's a musician, you know, he runs a studio in Brooklyn, Greylock. And and so I just 
you know, I started doing graphic design in the business, doing the ads. That was actually my, what I studied, advertising. And then this, this just made more sense when, when my daughter was born, you know, I made the full commitment to not just do the ads, but to start selling shows. So lifelong commitment to the business. Was there a certain point where you decided, yes, you were going to continue in the family business and that it's what you were going to fully dedicate yourself to? Or was there ever any, in any point where you were looking at other avenues and something other than the family business? Yeah. I mean, it was totally, uh, God, I was young. I mean, I was in college studying this other thing. I was looking at, you know, the, the classical graphic designers and the, the visual arts movements of the 20th century. And that's what I cared about. And that's what I was doing. And then... Uh, my daughter Penelope was born, came along, and the market crashed about oh eight, oh nine, exactly. <laughs> like you know, so I looked around, and the people that I knew in college were not getting jobs in the field, uh, illustration, graphic design, and meanwhile, I was already working at the business since I was sixteen, building all. Like at the time, we were buying a lot of print, <laughs> you know. So there was this still there was this legacy. So I was already working in the business and realizing that like this market crash and hey, by the way, you now have a baby <laughs> to, you know, to figure out. So yeah, I mean, it just was, it just felt like the natural play that was like, it was the responsible thing to do. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was, it was, it was definitely a major shift because I wasn't thinking about like promoting live events per se outside of like the collateral. And I was doing the merch at the time, um, I was doing that stuff. So I was obviously familiar with the product, but I, it was a steep learning curve, learning from Akiva Talmi, who is uh, kind of a dyed-in-the-wool, old-school promoter type. You know, he's hawking tickets in the parking lot before the sold-out event, right? Like, somehow yeah. he's, like, <laughs> he's still moving moving tickets, right? So that's his that's his vibe. So it was really, like, just learning just at, at the foot of the master in my head, right? This guy, like, built this thing out of nothing, and then all of a sudden you wake up and it's in a hundred markets and it's like, okay, just all ears, just trying to learn. That's what I try to remind myself every day. Just try to learn something. Now, this business. let's be clear. All of a sudden it's in a hundred markets, but this is a Christmas event. Yeah. How do you have a tour of a Christmas event in a hundred markets? At the peak of the footprint, um, probably in 2010, 12, somewhere in there, we, we added um, a third leg. So there's a West Coast, there's an East Coast for a while. And then, um, you know, in the interest of getting, like you said, it's a, it's a finite season. So December are the dates that really crank for the Christmas shows, right? So if you added a third leg, you know, you could get more markets into the peak season, and we did it for a long time. It was a lot of cities and it was a lot of overhead, but the pre-pandemic world was very different. It was working and the industry was chugging along. I mean, you'd have the headwinds from the financial crisis, but we were pretty over that by 2018, 2019, and then the pandemic hit. And so we sort of changed gears and we can get into that. But yeah, I mean, it was, th it was three tours and that's how we kind of crammed it in. As the person who's doing the majority of the marketing for the company, how do you spread marketing across 100 different territories? And in doing that, how do you maximize the right thing for each one of those territories? Because every market is different. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the fun part for me personally. This is what I spend a lot of time thinking about. Our team is pretty good at this aspect. So we think about it in a few dimensions. I mean, at the end of the day, I think most promoters understand that like, Every show, every building, I mean, is its own P&L statement, right? It's like its own business, uh, its own retail outlet. So, so you can look at it like that, right? You can go into a market and say, 
you know, we've sold out in Marion and it's 900 tickets and the costs are such and the, this market demands X for, for ads and, you know, Y for the venue costs. And then you have your, your, your you know, sort of local P&L and that's good or bad. But then when you take a step back to the touring pro forma um, and you're now amortizing costs for buses and hotels and artist fees across time, you know, two months for us, crew, overhead, you know, all of the line items now all of a sudden um, a great sellout like here 900 seats when you start adding in national costs all of a sudden your PL gets a little upside down if you were to just do it on a cash basis for that market mm-hmm. um so so then you so the accounting games begin <laughs> and it's like okay well if i'm gonna go to la and you know so you need your major anchors in our model we need our major anchors to really just crank and over deliver so that we can, you know, offset those national costs, you know, across the board. So, so it's 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 there's two ways to look at it, and and so like in a market like Milwaukee is like always is like the stereotype for us. Really strong ballet company, you know, Nutcracker, established Nutcracker, and in, in a great venue. And so you know, you go up against that, and with this commodity Nutcracker uh, product, those guys are eating a lot of market share. So our, our upside is capped. In a, in a in a real way but the costs are now a, a sort of like a mid to large size city milwaukee strong unions you've got expensive advertising and the venues aren't cheap so your upside is capped but your hard costs are going to be higher than average um, so you need those major la's like for us it's like detroit st louis atlanta fox like some really key gems that that compensate for the milwaukee's <laughs> uh where where our margins are super thin um yeah, so it really like depends on, you know, your your accounting, how you're gonna look at like relative performance, and you know, at the end of the day, you got to take the broader look for a tour like this. You've been involved with the marketing since 2008, 2010, somewhere in there. I was building advertising um, since I was 16, um, and that was uh, probably two th- like early 2000s, 2004. Five. So what have you what have you seen specifically for the arts world and this show specifically as the transformation of marketing mm. throughout your throughout your career within this? Yeah, it's been dramatic because that period, of course, covers the explosion of the internet, right? You know, I remember going to to APAP at that, you know, in the early two thousands and and this was coming up and people were talking about marketing and and you know the the traditional plays and you know, so it's it's print and it's broadcast, and there was a panel on, I want to say, I think it, it was either on radio or print, and, and oh, it's still viable, this is where our audiences are, it's the symphonies, it's the ballets, it's the regular, you know, suspects. And it was just a discussion about how these channels are in decline. This was 15 years ago, more. And, and at the time, I just remember thinking, like, okay, well, how long until broadcast TV is in that boat, and, and you know, cable TV, and... And we'd have those discussions in house, and it'd be like, not yet, not yet. Every every year, it'd be like, okay, are we gonna put? You know, we're still dumping most of the money into these old channels. Can't pull back yet. And Facebook comes around 07. I launch with the iPhone. You know, start dabbling. And, and with ballet, you know, it is an older audience by definition. And we're seeing all these rock shows and live nations of the world, like just, you know, they're blasting ahead in digital. And not yet for us. Not yet. Not yet. So held the ammo until it really felt right. 
Yeah, but post-pandemic, the floodgates kind of opened. Obviously, everything went digital in in just a very different way. And and now I think we're safely in a place where broadcast has has true tr- truly is now on a um, secular decline, right? Mm-hmm. So so you have everything's everything's OTT. Everybody's got Netflix streaming. There's just it, now TV feels like newspapers did 15 years ago. Or it's just you're you're old if you're watching it on linear TV. And with that being said, we still plug budget in. We're probably like thirty to forty percent TV, um, which is a big number uh, for us. But but then on the other side of the ledger, it's like seven channels deep of all the social channels, Google. I mean, on down. So no, it's been a constant shifting game, especially in the last three years. Like the we cut our so the the tour the last tour was 2019 before the pandemic. We down two years, and then we cut our budget, our broadcast budget by fifty percent in twenty two uh, for the tour that went out. It was just so obvious. It was like I, I don't know. We needed that shakeup in some ways to just to be like, okay, it's a different paradigm, and to realize it, and to feel brave enough. <laughs> you know, you're cutting TV after doing it for thirty. Like that's what we, I mean. We built the business on radio. And um, I mean, in in twenty twenty two, you were doing a lot of different and brave things. Yeah. Let's yeah. let's talk about what happened in 2022. You're you're getting ready to launch Moscow Ballet's Great Russian <laughs> Nutcracker for its grand relaunch post-pandemic and then the Russian-Ukraine conflict happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where does the story go from there for you? Yeah. Um so, you know, to set the scene, it's it's Moscow Ballet for whatever, 29 years at that point, 30 years. I think 2019 was a 30 year anniversary. So um, we booked, you know, we were, the pandemic hit the day that we were, you know, April 1st, whatever, the day that we were supposed to go on sale. National on sale for us is about April 1. And that's the day that I uh, furloughed my team uh, because of COVID. So, uh, so that proceeds and, you know, it's rebooking. It's what everybody did, rebook the season, rebook, rebook. Like seven, eight times rebook, rebook, yeah, rebook. Yeah, it was, uh, I've booked shows on the 2023 tour four times, five times. So, and how you get there is, okay, 20 was no good. Rebook it for 21. Rebook three tours. We're still at three tours at this point for 22. Um, and then, and then it's good, right? We're sailing along. COVID's over. We think we've passed the hump. Um, SVOG came in, woo, you know, like yeah. we're f- feeling good. Then February 24th of 2022, I was, uh, so then the war breaks out and our brand is Moscow Ballet's Great Russian Nutcracker. And over time, just for some context, like our artists had been pan Slavic, right? So we were heavily reliant on our Ukrainian friends in addition to the Russians ethnic Russians, but, um, but Ukraine had made up a, the preponderance of performers for such a long time, um, that, you know, the outbreak of the war was really a problem on multiple fronts. Logistically, the, the airports were being bombed out. Um, the people were fleeing. Um, there were tours that were ongoing. My friends, the Ukrainian artists that I've, you know, are my friends and I've known forever. Um, these guys are on tour when the war hits. So there's probably 150 professional level artists that were touring around the world and not in Ukraine when it happened. And um, so a lot of them just never went back, you know, so that's devastating in multiple ways. But um, 
so what do you do? Like you have to get up and like, you're about to go on sale. It's February. Our on sale is April one. <laughs> like, so we've got three tours, a jeopardized brand. And it's like, what do you, okay, well, do you change Moscow ballet's name? 30 years of touring you brand equity in this, in this name who comes to Nutcracker. It was really difficult to make a call like that. But, um, I talked to everybody that I could think of, uh, personal, professional, and ultimately the consensus internally was that a name change was appropriate, a branding pivot, if you will, you know, and for multiple reasons, right? It's like, it's just, you know, going to market with Moscow, Russia in the name problematic. The initial sentiment was very anti-Russia for a good reason, but then all of our performers are Ukrainian and they were like, there was no way I could even ask them. It like, wasn't even appropriate to be like, Hey, can you put this t-shirt on? Yeah. Right. Can you put this logo on, on your tag? Right. When you enter the building, it's got a Russian symbol on it. I mean, they're fighting to the death over there. So, um, so like, you know, we needed to change the name. So what do you do? Um, in three weeks, I think it was, uh, we came up with a new brand, Nutcracker Magical Christmas Ballet. Actually it was at first it was Nutcracker Magic of Christmas ballet and then we got a uh, cease and desist letter from a symphony which shall remain nameless <laughs> <laughs> because they had a one night event a year that had that was called magic of christmas and it was a whole thing of legal and lawyers and and so we actually rebranded everything we had merchandise in china we had the whole thing all of it uh, you know we, we rebranded the entire tour and then i had to go back to all of my venues and be like hey Remember how we re just rebranded? We actually need to get get you updated collateral. I mean, it was, and everybody was amazing. I mean, like, and luckily that the two names aren't that dissimilar. That from an outside perspective, that that change, that slight change in marketing, and just a couple of words within it, isn't going to be that deep of an effect. Right. Right. Absolutely true. But nonetheless, still. Horrific from a logistical well, <laughs> standpoint for you. I mean, I'm I like to be a perfectionist when it comes to going to market and what the product is and what's the brand experience because at the end of the day, it's a commodity product and you really rely on the branding to um, communicate the value proposition in a lot of ways. So so you're right. So yeah, I mean, we 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 cut from three tours down to one because of you know obvious liability and risk and oh my god, we don't have the brand name. Are we going to sell? Long story short, we crushed it in 22 and. And we're back. What did you do to create a through line for the branding that people would still associate that this is this is the tour of Nutcracker that I've fallen in love with for the past few decades to to maintain that while at the same time doing a full rebrand shift? Yeah. To to still have a recognition, but yet you're honoring the current sentiment and honoring the dancers that are within your company. Yeah. Yeah. No, this was uh this was one of the elemental challenges. What we had done, something that I'm, I feel very strongly about is as I was developing our print ads and all of that stuff when I was a teenager, uh, what started to happen was a voice, a visual voice started to emerge where every year we, you know, our key art, the poster for the tour, it started to become streamlined in such a way that, you know, the elements were slightly being tweaked, but you see it. And it's like, okay, I actually recognize the show based on the composition of the poster. It's kind of like if you can think of um, 
like the Rockettes logo is is dom is their dominant look. If you think of like Mannheim Steamroller, that logo hasn't changed. Um, so for us, um, it became the key art actually as like we're leaning into that. We're leaning into the color palette, and I think it was effective. Uh, the the logo changed, right? Nutcracker Magical Christmas Ballet versus Moscow Ballet, um, but the the color palette was consistent, and our and our amazing photography and video and presentation remained consistent. So when when it gets to the end user. I think the vibe was there, um, and I, you know, we we heavily lean into that, and and th that's where it just comes back to the branding being so important for us. I personally, I've been so impressed with you still being able to keep that through line, and and being able to visually ensure that they're going to have the same experience with a slightly different name. In our stop on this tour of Nutcracker has been sold out for about a month now. And that speaks specifically to the consistency of the branding and the voice through the visual that you were able to maintain. And it, it's so impressive that I, I really wanted to, to focus on that. Thank you. Uh, now, let's talk about, you talked about the amazing pictures and everything else. One of the marquee points that, that makes this specific Nutcracker so memorable for so many people is the beauty of the costumes and the consistency between the costumes and the backdrops and, mm -hmm. and how well crafted they all are. How does that process work for your company? How are those costumes designed, maintained and the scenery as well? Because all of it is unique to your production. True. True. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean the old adage in our family around the kitchen table is put the money on the stage. And so whenever we're kind of kicking around ideas, what should we do? Can we add a show in this market? You know, uh, should we buy a warehouse, not buy, you know, whatever the expense is and, and, and down to, can we invest in, you know, a new design for a new backdrop, a new concept for an, a scene and oh, it's really expensive. Oh, it's going to be, <laughs> you know, nothing is cheap when you, when you do it at a, at a high level. And the answer we always fall back on in our family and our shop is like, put the money on the stage. So, you know, over time, it took three decades. Um, but over time, it became clear that you really need to articulate a vision. And, and you what you need is people that are qualified to help you visualize that vision, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if that makes sense to put it on paper, to add their own flavor to what you're putting out there, and and allow your team to run with stuff if you've got the right creative team in place, that becomes a really magical kind of experience because I'll just give you an example. This year we added a seer wheel uh, artist to the show. It's a, it's a circus act, right? So it's it's not ballet, it's, it's tangentially related, of course, but it's not ballet, it's not classical. So that was all I had. I was like, all right, let's do a seer wheel. That's gonna be dope, I love that. Cool, what does this do? But it took a choreographer out of a Ukrainian living in Poland to collaborate with Mary Talmy, who's, you know, ostensibly a creative director and, and they're talking choreography. We brought in our um, longtime collaborator on um, costumes, Arthur Oliver, who's, who's our essentially in-house designer. And so he's putting together visuals for the costume for what, what does this uh, character that we ended up calling the Herald, what does the Herald look like? And he's, he's uh, joint and his role in the show is these, um, welcoming Clara and the prince to the land of peace and harmony in act two. And so they come to this land of, of peace and all of the nations are there welcoming uh, these uh, principal artists. And so he's this interesting character where he's got this, uh, he's got the acrobatics happening, but he's part of this jungle scene. And so, oh, and Akiva, he's got these, he's a puppet guy at, at heart. 
And so he's like, we got to add more birds. He, you know, we got every year there's more birds. So, and it's, we, and so he found this incredible artist in South Africa who does this like Lion King style animal puppets on, on sticks and wires. And they're, they're just beautiful. And so over time, you know, that was developed. There was one bird at first, and then there was a flock of doves, dove of peace, right? And now this year with the Herald, we have all kinds of exotic, you know, tropical birds. And it all actually came together through multiple parties, just kind of like workshopping this thing. And now what we've seen this year is that the sear wheel scene gets substantial applause as it relates to, you know, on our scale. For, mm-hmm. for, for what else we're seeing, right? I mean, we're excited to keep developing that. These ideas are kind of freeform, but it just took, like, I would have never, see, I didn't see the outcome when we started. It was like, throw it, throw these people at it. Everybody's adding stuff and, and you kind of see what comes out. Now, does the, does the rebranding away from Moscow Ballet to the magical Christmas Ballet, does that give you more freedom to do alternate style acts within the piece as opposed to strict ballet? Well, I think that is an astute observation because Moscow Ballet's Great Russian Nutcracker is from the kickoff an ethnic show. It's got Russian in the name. So so we, we were always, we felt like we were playing within a specific sandbox. We had to keep that Russian flavor. And that was what we were trading on in, in, in a significant way. But now, you know, we have artists from all over the world and I don't feel like I'm misrepresenting the act if i have you know artists from italy or japan or uh, turkey we have some uh, beautiful artists from uh, the uk this year in addition to creative direction and principal artists from ukraine you know these these folks will always be the heart of the show it was sort of an unlooked for opening of a door that you know we we were like kind of stumbled oh well we could maybe without this framework we can actually do some other things and still be true and authentic to what the show is really about and what we're about as a team. It's amazing what opportunities are laid in front of you yeah. when faced with a substantial change in operation. <sighs> you know, yeah. that a lot of us experienced that with COVID mm-hmm. and now with your rebranding, the the door that it's opened, uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing the the change with, with the circus element into the scene and, and what that opens for you guys also in the future creatively and and where you can further develop this and and continue to make to make this that experience. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely um, <laughs> like a uh, the Jenga tower fell over, and now you have a different picture that you're working with, and you sort of you sort of figure it out. But you know, I mean, like the, we started off trying to get Ariel into the show this year because I know this incredible sear wheel artist that also does Ariel, and so when I worked with him on a circus tour that I did uh, a while back, he would come down from the, you know, from the rigging on this giant silver wheel covered in silver paint. And it was just like, and then he, so he's doing this aerial act and then, you know, he's dropped to the deck and he's doing, and he's doing this incredible wheel act after the aerial. So, so the first thing was like, what can we like, let's just blow this out and do like, what would it take? And it turns out it would take about 150 grand, (laughs) you know, and riggers and, and more stuff on the truck and people on the crew. So for us, as a bus and truck thing, and a slightly higher liability shelf, whenever you oh. bring in aerial rigging into your dude, operation, dude. I mean, like the the insurance companies are already you know pushed t- 
to the to their limit with ballet. Fifty people on the road, buses, trucks in December. What with ice on the road? So, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, so we didn't cross that bridge yet. And my hats off to like the Cirque teams that do it because, to be honest, I don't know how they do it. I mean, it's wild um, with all the obstacles. I mean, and, you know, I'm not a circus guy, right? So they maybe you grow up in that environment, and you figure it out. But for us, we looked at it for this year. Keep the seer wheel on the ground. And, and we'll see, we'll see what we can go from there. But yeah, it's been, it's been super fun to see that kind of uh, we, revitalization of some of the, some of the show. Keep That's awesome. So from a marketing standpoint, one of the things that I'd like to talk to you about is your merchandise hmm. at your shows that is so incredibly well-branded and consistent. And one of my favorite pieces that we've ever had of merchandise that we've ever had in this building, let alone just your show, but in the building as a whole was the nesting dolls that you guys had that were branded with your dancers and your costumes on each different level of the nesting doll. My daughter still has them in her playroom cool. and still loves them. And so this was from six years ago, I think is sure. when we got them. That's just one example, but there are so many beautiful branded products that you have with you on the road. How important is consistent of branding throughout your merchandise for you that perpetuates your costuming, your visuals, and everything else? Yeah, merch is, you got to have it, right? And and for us, um, you know, it's a vertically integrated business model. So so it's an opportunity. It's, it's, it's that, it's gravy, right? Um, and uh, so it's key, ultimately. Um, it generally doesn't make or break us from a financial perspective. But like I said, uh, you know, if we come out at the end of the year and you can, you know, lay on some net revenue, like incremental revenue is always a welcome thing and, and it helps, you know, around the edges. So, um, but actually, like, as a customer experience, you really want that table to be festive. Mm -hmm. um, it's the same thing with the show program. Like you don't like, there's just things that you expect in the theater and the customer experience that if, when it's not there, you really notice it. Mm -hmm. And so merch is one of those things. We really want that table to feel good. You want to walk into the lobby and, and it's a gorgeous decorate. You guys have a beautiful setup for Christmas and that's exactly the same idea, right? So the merch table is festive. You've got all this incredible imagery and, and photography and the colors and it's, and it's, I'm, you know, I'm a design nerd. So like I really care about this stuff where um, I have a personal interest uh, um, where uh, maybe some people you know ah, do a T-shirt. But for me, it's like, yeah, OK, what does it look like, though? What's the design? You know, so um, we work really closely with the design team on that stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, just to kind of zoom out a little bit, the merch end of the business has become more difficult. I think production costs, everybody understands the inflation of the last, you know, five years has been real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we buy in enough bulk uh, where we're shipping from overseas and the container costs have become prohibitive. Uh, so we've had to get smarter about that. And it's affected the way we're marketing tickets too, because for a long time we were just doing a lot of like upsells with the ticket, a lot of promotions with merch, the add-ons. But like we were selling so many tickets that those merch add-ons were becoming exceedingly expensive because they're just taking up another container. Some of that stuff has fallen by the wayside in the like marketing and promotions using merch. You know, so we have the core stuff for retail. There are some venues on this tour that are charging 30, 35% commissions on top of taxes. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know that they're thinking too hard about it, but like, that's the margin. <laughs> like, yeah. like it's gone at that point. So like, Either we are charging $60, $70 for a Nutcracker 
or like we won't sell in that city, which is not something pre-pandemic that I would that would have even been on the table. So yeah. you start and to th- think, yeah. There's an interesting thing with the house take of merch. Industry-wise, I'm interested to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Live Nation has repetitively kind of set some parameters that have become industry standards. And over the summer, they announced they're no longer taking merch cuts from artists on tours. And I'm just interested to see how that plays overall industry-wise. We we don't, at, at our theater, we don't take a cut of merch. Mm. Uh, you don't get a, a cut of our bar sales or sure. our car, concession sales. We don't get a cut of your merch. We're the venue. You're the act. They're not here without either of us. Right. And so th- that's just our view. Um, and, and other people have very different views on it within the industry. Uh, and, and I feel like this is a very especially with all of the inflation and production costs and everything else, it's a very timely conversation to have. And especially with your merch specifically that is so well-branded to where whenever people put up their Christmas decorations, the nutcracker that they got while they were here is part of that Christmas decoration right. is a constant reminder. Right. The, the nesting doll that I see 20 times throughout the year in my daughter's playroom is a constant reminder of the costuming and the scenery sure. and everything that is a part of your production and it's you have structured your merchandise to be a part of people's homes, which is a very different approach than, you know, the t-shirt on a concert. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I think that's brilliant for one, for perpetuation of marketing and perpetuation mm-hmm. of brand. Uh, but two, the production costs are different with that than they are with t-shirt printing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you definitely have fewer options for manufacturing nesting dolls than t-shirts, right? So it's, it's interesting in that way. Yeah, I mean, this, the merch cut, you know, I said it's it's incremental revenue and you want that incremental revenue to grow and the venue um, cuts an obstacle to that growth when they are also increasing. And I think it's a, it's a sensitive topic. I think a lot of like acts on the road, I mean, you hear it in the testimony on Capitol Hill when the artists are out there and they feel like it's an inherently unfair dynamic mm-hmm. um, to be truthful. And, you know, I mean, not a venue guy, but I can, you know, trying to put that perspective on, I get it. Like they're the landlord, there's no merch sales without the venue. So you pay the piper. And, and I think that like people would be cool with that on the show side without question. But I think at times it just feels like, uh, like it can certainly feel that the, that the concerns of the artist or the show are really just kind of like, eh, after, you know, they'll, they'll pay it cause they have to. And so I, I think so much of it is the tone of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Like you want to at least feel like the venue is like thinking about you. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and that helps. That helps a lot. And thinking you know? of you in a way other than a commodity. Yeah, because the risk as a renter, a producer coming in promoting a show, it can often feel like, uh, well, if I'm not there, that's a dark night. And the venue often... I think forgets that or, or maybe it's just, you know, not part of their, like live nation, right. They're promoting their own shows. They don't really care about renters that much from the bottom line perspective. It's yeah. just not a huge part. And like, so, so it's really fascinating. I mean, this is the, this is the fun stuff, right? Cause it's like, well, how are they going to calculate their allocation of resources? What's well, going to be to their own shows? Yeah. You know, because they can't spend all that time on, on, I have endless box office inquiries and promotions and I got a million ideas and they're like, dude, like we got our own shows. So, so, you know, I, I, I think there's a fine balance. And again, it does come back to like, it's the tone in how those conversations are had. I think if people are 
ghosting you, that sucks. But if it's like, dude, you know what? Talk to me. You know, let's, let's set up a call a month from now. And we'll run through all your your trouble hits. Great, F awesome. Like, let's do that. The clarity is important. Um, you know, with respect to the Live Nation like announcements about the the merch, I I wonder how that like because I. I think they're going to be charging me merch on this tour. So, like, I was wondering if they were going to waive it, but I have a sense that that might be on the club level. Well, and I, it, I think it's on, it's on the tours that they that own. they're doing. Yes, so, not the tours that are in their venues. So here's the again the difference between being a renter on the outside and then you know the, their own shows. So and then what you know again like I'm on the outside here, but then I think I heard the Neva group right like the incredible work that those folks have done during the pandemic mm -hmm. to really i mean make s v o g happen just an incredible group of people but then they came out against that uh live nation policy because hey, you know these smaller independent venues can't compete with that, and maybe shows are being poached so as a third party nutcracker Christmas show, I don't have a dog in that fight but uh -huh. <laughs> you know, and I probably don't understand all the nuances, but uh, it sure makes for good watching popcorn, it does you know <laughs> it does and, and I think there's a there's it is an active conversation ongoing in the field right now mm. between artists and presenters and being a house that doesn't charge any merch merch cut I, I do feel like we're currently in the minority in that mm -hmm. conversation sure uh, now if if we're prov providing somebody to sell right there needs to be compensation for that but does that need to be a percentage of your sales i don't know yeah. that's that's an open point for conversation still for me yeah but the but when you're not providing seller all you're providing is maybe an 8 foot table or two sure it's it's very ripe for discussion yeah and i it's probably also like dependent on the artist and the deal i mm -hmm. would imagine there's probably like it gives you leverage to like you c it gives you chips to trade like okay well maybe we won't do a, a merch cut and and it's like doing you a solid it feels good from the relationship perspective makes that artist really want to play that room so I mean and that's probably at the heart of what Live Nation and it's a good PR thing they just came off their Ticketmaster stuff mm -hmm. with Taylor Swift whatever uh, but yeah no it's 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 fun to think about and um, you know I think uh, ultimately look the truth is like if the room is full for a show like Nutcracker Magical Christmas Ballet if the room is full like what's happening at the merch table is gravy but like it's not changing the outcome that much you know so so really it's about the relationships and keeping those healthy so that we can keep filling the room <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> I want to say thank you for sitting down with me today. We're in the middle of a, a production day where you're here in the theater in Marion, Illinois, and I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule with, we're on a Monday, and you've got a ton of phone calls. You've been on the phone the majority of your time while you've been here, and so I appreciate you taking the time out of that and sitting down with us. Well, thanks for the invitation, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Josh, thanks so much for bringing Dan to the podcast. I mean, first of all, thank you to Dan for taking the time out of what clearly was a very busy day. Um, but what really struck me throughout the the whole duration of your conversation is the resilience of Dan and the company um, and the care that they take for their artists. Like those are the two things that really struck me from every story that he told and every, you know, piece of the last few years that he shared with us. Um, and so I was really glad that we were able to take part in this conversation with you. I appreciated the national aspect of, of the touring part of that and being the producer component of that, just, you know, thinking about dates as a one-off, like, oh yeah, you can talk about being in, in the money on, on a show. But then when you start looking at 
all the things that go into the national tour, which is something, you know, being on, on this side of the industry, like I never really considered, like, what are all those costs that, that, that go into, to making that work. And sometimes, you know, him talking about how, you know, certain things like help, help other shows do better and certain, you know, so it's, it, it all plays sort of in the, in that same pond, which I thought was like quite fascinating. Kevin, similarly, I felt the same way about the timing and I know working in this, in this industry, I should know that things happen like, you know, way ahead of time, but the thought of going on sale for the Nutcracker in April, I, I like the first time he said that I was like, no, <laughs> Josh, I really enjoyed learning about Dan and, and all the different things that you guys covered. You covered so many wonderful points and topics, but just to go back to the way he talked about amortizing the three tours, how they had their cash cow essentially sitting down in one large venue in a city and that kind of offset the cost where they were going to probably break even, maybe even lose money in Milwaukee and other places in the Midwest, but it was important to still do it. And it kind of reminded me of how we kind of approach seasons a lot as presenters, how we'll have our cash cow kind of show to hopefully make enough money to offset those other shows that are just as important to bring to our stage, but are probably going to lose money or maybe break even at best. And so I thought that was just an interesting way from that other perspective. So Josh, and talking about pivoting, right? And when you talked with Dan about coming out of the pandemic and then the Ukraine-Russia conflict happening and the impact on the company, I was really struck by how he uh, like he and the company absolutely put the artists first and that was their first priority was the well-being and the um, like considering the emotional impact that keeping that title would have on the artists that were the heart and soul of the company and of the show um i really thought that was admirable and i was really glad to hear the care that they took in making that decision and going through the rebranding process i think we all probably know folks that wouldn't have taken that much care in that conversation and thinking about the human impact um, and not just the business impact that losing 30 years of brand recognition could have. Um, But I thought that was really poignant and I really appreciated you digging into that a little bit and really talking about the human impact that that would have on his company members. And then of course, you know, the, the actual benefits that came out of that change and, you know, how surprising and like how it's going to open doors for other artists to participate in that company and that wonderful programming too. So silver lining there, but I really appreciated them thinking about the human impact of that over the bottom line. What struck me so much just, and I said this in the interview, but I, it, it still is so important to me that visually you automatically knew it was the same company looking at their advertisement, looking at their imagery because of how iconic they had made their imagery as part of their branding during those 30 years. And so the the seamless nature of a rebrand of 30 years name recognition and the way that it happened was so incredibly impressive. And that goes to how Dan has a marketing background and it's like he was the right person at the right time for when that happened. I loved uh, the whole idea when you guys got into talking about the color, just keeping the color scheme the same and how important that is because he knows about color psychology and marketing and how important that is um, because that's what was sticks in people's minds. And so, yeah, I, I thought that was fascinating to think about and having to go through that heartbreaking experience. And, I, you know, my heart goes out to his Ukrainian colleagues and friends, and I hope that their families are okay. Yeah, the entire approach to that was incredibly thoughtful. I mean, not even just on the human aspect of that, but just how the pivot in the business went. 
um, to be able to make that be successful. Uh, but additionally, what I thought was a, a really interesting conversation, and Josh, I appreciate you two diving into this, is that conversation about merch. Um, just because like from a, from a logistics level, I mean, all the different things that they, that they have, that they provide, how that is changing post pandemic, but also the idea and the very common practice of, you know, the, the, the cut for the house, the, that percentage, which I thought was like, I thought it was a very interesting conversation and, you know, sort of that role reversal of like, what's it feel like on the other side of the table? I mean, because, you know, being, being in the positions that we are, some of these things are just like, you know, it's how it's always been. We've always done it this way. It's been built into our contracts. Um, and we've never really given the time to think about that. And maybe in a different time, different space, like it was less important, but like as finances are getting so, so tight and those margins are getting tighter and tighter, that merch is, is, is a big deal to an artist and a performer. And he talked about how it's really not, it's their gravy. It's not really a, a big deal to a company of his size, but we work with a lot of smaller companies and a lot of independent artists. And that is a major part. That's their gas to the next gig. That's their meal in between. I mean, it, it really, yeah. and their margins are really small. I used to do, you know, in one of the marketing companies I worked for when I left the field for a while, we did, we dabbled into, you know, getting those types of things that are the same as merch. And, and I know how those margins work, you know, I, I know, and the markup that, that happens, he can't go any higher because you're not going to have the sales then. And so it's just, yeah, it's heartbreaking. And I'm in the minority with Josh. I don't like taking them. Um, unfortunately I'm in a situation where I'm at a university and that's determined by the administration. So I always explain that up front, like, yes, I feel for you. I wish I could do something about these and I, I make the case, but it's not up to me. Ultimately, this is what we have to do if we're doing merch. But I agree with Josh. It should be fair. Like, yeah, if we're supplying the seller, that cost should be, because that's a real cost that we're incurring, that should be covered. Yes. But as far as the actual sales and revenue from the merch, I don't believe that that the venue should be cut, taking that cut. However, I do think he needs a new argument, though, because there, it's very flawed to say, well, if we weren't there, you'd have a dark night. Because that's not necessarily true. That'd be like, let's flip it around in his head. It's like, if if you're not at my venue, then you don't have a gig. No, there's lots of venues. There's lots of artists. So I would recommend he doesn't use that as an argument because if he's not there, then there might be another artist there or a rental or some other event happening. It doesn't mean I'm necessarily dark. But that's not to, to belittle his, his overall point is the fact that merchandise cuts are really not fair for the artists. And also, I mean, we're talking, you know, it, it may not be like, you know, make it or break it on, on the, the merch side of things and like bringing things in. However, I mean, that is part of the reason that their brand has been so successful is like constantly seeing that merchandise, that, that branding on things that are, are, you know, like Josh said, like in, in his daughter's room, you know, the 12 months or the 11 months a year that the Nutcracker is not mm -hmm. there. Well, and then the other part of it is, you know, they, they sell Christmas ornaments and Nutcrackers and, and the things that you get out with your Christmas decorations, that is an emotional part of your family being together every year. Their branding is right at the center of you getting into that holiday spirit. And that's a, a beautiful in your home, in your face, repetitive marketing strategy. Since listening to your conversation with Dan, Josh, I've actually talked to a couple of colleagues about this question of the ethics of taking a merch cut like that. And I do think that's something we need to reevaluate 
because we have talked so heavily as an industry about you need the three legs of the stool, right? You need the three legs of the triangle to make this work, the agent, artist, and presenter. But we've talked about equitable contracting. We've talked about non-refundable deposits. We've talked about, you know, different ways of structuring contracts that are more favorable to the artist in case there is some sort of natural disaster or something else happens, right? So why isn't this a larger part of the conversation? Um, So when I ran the Playhouse of White Lake, I was working with, you know, small regional and local artists, and we didn't take a cut of their merch because they're going to sell 10 CDs at 10 bucks a pop. Like me taking 10% of that doesn't really impact my bottom line, but to your point, like impacts them. And I wasn't giving them a cut of my concession sales. Like, so where's the balance in that? And where's the ethics? I would love to see more conversations about this at conferences and as part of, you know, PD sessions or affinity group sessions in the different spaces where we gather, where we can have active conversations about the equity in this um, and the ethics behind different venues of different types. And I think that has some a role to play in it, whether you're a rental house or a live nation or a small independent venue. I think there's different situations that deserve deeper conversation. I mean, obviously, like there, there's a lot of levels to this topic. And it's one of the things when I was, you know, running, running my own venue. I mean, from the, the capitalist side of things, like, are you leaving money on the table? Like, I mean, for us, it was a way to maybe offset that cost of like, hey, we can charge a little bit less on our ticket prices, or we can worry about this a little bit less if we have this cut of merch for a show that's going to do really well on merch. Um, but from the capitalist side of things, we also use it as a negotiation and a leveraging tool. Because honestly, like if you ask me like, hey, we don't want to pay this merch cut. Like our response was, as long as you're providing the seller in the bank, we don't, we, 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 that's fine. Like it was an easy thing to negotiate out. But, you know, for us in a, in a small market and a very like, you want to talk tight margins, like that was, I, I viewed it as sometimes money on the table. But it's, it is very complex. And however, I will say that I was also running a venue pre-pandemic. Um, and now with things getting tighter and tighter, I would, I mean, here, we, we don't take a cut. And I, I think, Kevin, I think that's, you hit the nail on the head between what you and Katie just said, because obviously if you're having a, a quote, I hate to say smaller artist, but if you're having a, a, an artist that's going to only sell 10 CDs at 10 bucks a pop, that's not going to affect your bottom line, like Katie said. But then if you have the Lion King yeah. with like all this massive merchandise that's, you know, so yeah, there is, there, there is room for both the venue and the artist to share in certain circumstances. And you're right. It's case by case. But on this podcast, I often think of the self-represented artists that, you know, the people that are just starting out. And so that's why I kind of lean my, my thinking to them. But that is actually a good point. I mean, just having that conversation and hearing something like this as a self-represented artist, just knowing that this is a a negotiation point. Like you can always talk about that cut and not feel that, Hey, just because the venue takes 20% means that you have to give 20%. Like talk about that before you get into that contract phase. There's definitely a scale in this conversation about, you know, there's, there's a huge difference between a trio and this nutcracker performance. Um, But the thing about that conversation, I think that really struck me is the reminder to be media literate and to really read about things that are being published. Because when he was talking about that news release and and then was thinking back on it and was like, well, actually, I think they're still charging me for merch that might just be on their on their Ticketmaster shows. I'm not a part of this conversation. <laughs> I've never had that much merch in my building. Um, so this was all in a learning experience for me. But that as a reminder of being media literate and not taking everything you see 
as face value really struck me. So thank you, Dan. Josh, I appreciate you having the marketing conversation with Dan. What I thought was really fascinating was talking about the changes in marketing over time, you know, talking about that evolution from like being super print heavy to, you know, now, you know, at one point being, you know, very, very heavily reliant on TV and sort of seeing that that shift and that writing on the wall of like, where we're at in the broadcast world, you know, where, you know, print was at this time. I thought that that was, I thought it was fascinating because I think we all see that, but like hearing it equated like that really, really clicked with me. And so I, I I just, I I thought that was a really astute observation from him to, and the way he worded that. As a company, they have a a great marketing approach because they do it a hundred times in one month. I know that he has been very carefully tracking all of these trends because they do such a great job of application every time. Um, Thank you all for sitting down with us with this today. Thank you, Dan, for sitting down with me and taking time out while you were here and Marion on your stop of the Nutcracker Tour. We'll see you here next time on There's No Business Like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? (laughs) I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus I-ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. So in March of 2021, our CEO at the Inland Center for the oh, Arts. Sorry. What? Are you okay? <laughs> I missed it. Sorry, I started just stuffing get- my nose, unstuffing my nose, and then I remembered we were recording a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm not sure if I've talked about this on the podcast yet, um, but uh, my, I'm just making mouth sounds now. Ma, ma. <laughs> um, early days in the pandemic, I I was lost, clearly, because um, I'm lost most days anyway. But um, now you're found. And um, you were blind. No, I just I always... <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Why'd you leave some of the listeners out? You only think the people that were sitting down listening to us, but there's some that are washing dogs and dishes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a callback to a very old. Also, like he was like digging on like how Milwaukee is a small town market. Like he must really love being with you. (laughs) Yeah.